Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Yeah, everybody doing good? Well, I'm Pastor Derek, if you don't know who I am, and I just want to welcome you again to Connect. We're in a new series starting today. You guys are here for kickoff. Are you ready? All right, you need to worship guys out. You can get, uh, if you're following us on version, the outline is in there as well, or you can uh, get your Bibles out as well. There's two key portions of Scripture that we'll be teaching from today, Romans 1 and Isaiah chapter 5, and we'll Bible thump around in between those. Um, kind of to uh, kick off this, I just want to say um, I approach this with uh, humility and a kind of a sense of sober uh, judgment about the whole thing. This is a first ever in my pastorate. I've never kind of talked about some of these subjects, danced around a, pieces of it, but um, this is kind of a first ever for Connect in my uh, almost 11 years as a senior pastor and almost two decades in ministry. Uh, actually, it is two decades in ministry. Um, this will be the first. We typically, as a church, are known for being very real and talking about kind of um, the tougher subjects, the tougher questions, the tougher issues, everything from you know marriage and family issues getting really personal, getting really real, uh, finances, uh, you know, um, faith issues, things like that, healing, etc. Um, this this is a this is a big one. So I, I want to uh, encourage you to kind of uh, open your heart, uh, listen, um, you know, with your heart, not just your ears, and uh, and then kind of put this into your devotional life between Sundays and uh, check some of these things out for yourself. Amen? Amen? The theme text that was on the message opener there is taken from Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Micah is a minor prophet. I'm going to talk about the prophets a little bit today. And um, prophecy, as you probably know, is a foretelling uh, of things to come. One of the things that distinguishes uh, Christianity from other uh, major religions is uh, is prophecy and specifically prophetic fulfillment, meaning we not only have prophecy, other uh, faiths do not, but we have prophetic fulfillment, things that were spoken of hundreds of years prior that have actually come to pass. That's a pretty profound testament to the reality of God and of Christianity. Amen. And so this is an example of that in Micah chapter 4. This is talking about things to come. And I, I wanted to present this scripture as an overarching text, kind of a series text, to uh, convey the um, incredible uh, positive side of what will happen in the last days. There's a, there is some things about the last days that are very positive for the church. Uh, the church isn't going to be... Um, uh, marginalized and minimized. It's not going to be uh, sidelined and sidetracked. It's not going to be shut down. It's actually going to uh, uh, it's actually going to rise above and uh, pierce through darkness in troubled times and in the last days. Micah says, "In the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord, speaking of the church, shall be established in the top of the mountains, not in the valleys." Not in the dark places, but in a place where everybody can see it. It'll be like a tower. It'll rise above. And it shall be exalted above the hills. And this is the cool part, the exciting part, uh, the thing that really gets me as uh, a person who has the office of an evangelist. Uh, people shall flow unto it. Can I have an amen out there? Amen. What they're saying is, is the church is going to, in the last days, it's going to be a place that people see, people are drawn to, or people are flowing unto. People are going to come 
to the Lord uh, by the droves. The Bible says in Joel 2 that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. There's going to be a final move of God, an outpouring of God upon the earth, and people are going to uh, run, in essence, to the church. And so as a church, we need to get ready uh, to not only address the sequence of the last days, but to be able to address... uh, uh, the final days are not, in this particular subject as we talk about this today, I'm not just going to be talking about, you know, understanding it informationally. In fact, I want to give you a, a kind of a, a big idea for the series, and this is kind of my um, eschatological view in a nutshell. Are you ready? It's basically this. It's get ready, stay ready, and get others ready. If I had to put it in two words, it would be be ready. Be ready for the, for, for the final days. Be ready for the return of Christ. The best way to address the last days is to think with the end in mind and work your way back. We're people, certain people, not all of us, but some of us have a predisposition, a propensity to study the sequence, but we're really not studying the outcomes. We're really not studying how important this is, not just prophetically, I know this is a big word, so hang with me, providentially, but how it affects me personally. The series, The Last Days, is to unpack some of these things so we can understand them from a prophetic standpoint, but it's also to understand that we will all have a last day. Are you, are you kind of connecting the dots now a little bit? In other words, our last days, when it's our last day, we need to all be ready for our final day, our last day here on the earth, because life is not, uh, uh, it's not a dress rehearsal. It's the real show. We have this life to make certain determinations, and I'll uh, get into that a little bit more. But, you know, there, it's, 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 it's a temporary assignment. It's a, it's a test. It's, it's, it's a trademark. It shows what, who we belong to. It shows what's important to us, and it's, it's, uh, it reveals a lot about this life. So in the last days, the church is going to rise up, and the church should be a place where subjects like this are addressed more and more as the day of the Lord approaches. We are supposed to, Hebrews says, meet more and more as the day, the day. If you look at that in Hebrews chapter 10, the word day is capitalized. It's speaking of the final day, the last day, judgment day, things like that. So we need to be ready for that day, meeting more, talking about these things more and more, and the church should be a place where we find answers, we find hope. It should be a place where people are reconciled, restored, it's a place of refuge, it's a place where uh, people are healed and made new, amen? So a bonus scripture, Matthew 5, 14 says, you are the light of the world, speaking of the church, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. A great parallel scripture to Micah chapter 4, verse 1. So this series is kind of going to answer some questions regarding the present and future. And again, I want to encourage you to get ready because many ask, are we living in the last days? Pastor, do you believe we're living in the last days? Uh, I would say, yes, I do believe we're living in the last days. Um, now, some people can argue that. Um, people have said that for generations. Um, I believe there are a lot of signs and indicators we'll, we'll we can't address them all this morning, but that's why I encourage you to come back week after week so we can kind of get into the, the details of that. But what, what do we believe as a church about heaven? What do you believe about hell? And what do you believe about eternity? What do you believe about judgment day? What do you believe about the return of Christ? That's what this series is going to address. It's going to address some of the questions that people have uh, that they verbalize sometimes in private chambers but don't want to talk about in public settings. We're going to kind of do that. I think it's a timely series. 
And I believe the Word leaves us clear instructions, kind of a roadmap for a lot of this. It requires some wisdom to discern it That's kind of and dissect it, which is kind of why a lot of times people avoid it, including myself. But um, I want to try to help us kind of deal with the when and, and the then. And, and, and I want to get into, again, the prophetic or providential, the big picture. But I really more want to emphasize how it relates to us personally. And uh, so today we're going to talk about a tough question, um, a tough question, and it is a tough question. It's kind of the question of the day. It's a question that many have asked, many have thought, and I want to equip you who are connectors here. I want to uh, help you, for those of you who thought these kind of questions and know how to answer it, but the question is, how could a loving God send someone to hell? This is, we're talking about final day, last days. How, what, what about that? Have you ever heard or asked that question before? Raise your hand. Have you ever heard or asked that question before? And how could a loving God send anybody to hell? This is a classic kind of uh, 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 question that forms certain resistance uh, to the gospel. And, and most times when a question like that is asked, it's, it's stated in an accusatory tone. Um, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? That's kind of how it's very rarely shared as I just genuinely want to know. I genuinely want to understand. I, I don't really get it. And, and I want to address the uh, information side of it, answering that question, but I also want to address the tone or the feeling that more commonly comes with that. Is everybody tracking with what I'm saying? So there's an intellectual side to this that I want to talk about, but there's kind of an attitude and a heart piece that I want to talk about. And eventually, I want you to be able to see kind of in the two main points that I'm addressing that there, that there is a side to this that, can, that, that you can get here, but there's a, there's a bigger side that you need to get in here. And I hope that I can do that. Um, again, the, there's two main points, two major texts, two important things you need to know. Let me give you the first one. The first point is this, is that, and this is important for you to know as a Christian, this is good theology, this will help you in a lot of other areas beyond the subject, but that God is a just God. God is just. What I mean by this simply is God will never give an unjust judgment. God will never be unjust with another person, with any person. And this particular statement uh, uh, leads us, guides us to another classic question that is often asked. This is either asked um, in conversation or relationship between two people that have come close. It's either asked or, or spoken about between, in, a, in some kind of a debate, or a lot of times it'd be in a situation, maybe you're in a theology class and you're learning apologetics. But the question, the follow-up question to how could a loving God send someone to hell is, would God send someone to hell who's never heard the gospel? In other words, this is what people who know of the gospel or have believed the gospel, they ask that question. How could someone send somebody to hell who's never heard the gospel? Have you ever heard that question before? Anybody? Okay, so I'm going somewhere with this. In other words, if someone never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, what about them, PD, so-and-so? What if they were alive before Jesus Christ appeared? What if, you know, what if someone in a remote part of the world uh, never heard the gospel? Would God send them to hell? Well, first of all, that's actually, that statement is actually coming to an end. Missiologists, these are people who uh, study the perpetuation of the gospel throughout the earth, say that we're, we're anywhere between seven and like 15 years away from the entire world actually having heard or received the gospel, which is amazing. That's a sign that we are in the last days. One of the major 
indicators that we're in the last days is the gospel will be heard throughout the whole earth, and the Bible says, and then the end will come. Does that make sense to you guys what I'm saying? So an indicator, I'm not saying it's the only one, but I'm saying it's a pretty major one. But what about the people who've never heard the gospel? <laughs> um, and I'm going to address that in a second, but it made me think of a story about my dad. My dad is a converted atheist. You may not realize this, but this whole ministry was uh, founded on a person uh, who originally saw uh, Christianity as a crutch. In other words, everybody just, you need to do that. This is something, it's just, you know, something you do to kind of get through life, and I get it. And, but he was actually a very uh, antagonistic atheist. Uh, in fact, my conviction is there's really no such thing as an atheist. I don't believe just their, their defiance of God is an acknowledgement of God. Their cursing of God is an acknowledgement of God. You know, they say, when they curse, they say Jesus Christ. When they curse, they say God. It's, it's an acknowledgement. It testifies that God, why would you, anyway, I could go off on that. But I believe that really at the root of an atheist, it's usually an angry person who has issues with something that they expected him to do and he didn't do it because of a lack of understanding or a lack of relationship. And But my father was one of those people. He is a converted atheist. How did he get converted? Short version is my mom, an undercover Christian, married uh, my father. She was kind of backslidden and hidden in her faith, and she married my father, and then they started having uh, kind of uh, trials, tumultuous trials within the, 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 their relationship and their marriage, and it, it brought her back to God. It brought her back to her faith. It brought her back to her knees. Isn't that what God does? He takes circumstances in our life. He doesn't cause them, but he'll leverage them and use them to steer us back to him. And so that's what was happening. And so my mom went back to God, started praying for my father, talking to him about her faith. And ultimately, he went to church. He heard a preacher say, let's just say someone similar to me, kind of unpacked complicated things, answered a few questions, and ultimately he shared the gospel with my father, and my father accepted. He wanted to receive the gospel in a service like this. He, he uh, ex accepted the Lord, and at the end of the service, the pastor said, I would like to kind of uh, talk to you and pray with you some more. For those of you who gave your heart to Christ, would you please join me? And they had some kind of like fellowship room at the back. They all went to the back, and as my father's walking to the back, he's changing his mind, and he's starting to think about all the things he didn't have answered yet, and really what's happening is the enemy's coming in and just planting different things to uproot the seed. That's what the enemy does. You, you, God plants a seed, and then, you know, crows come in and try to steal it and rob it, make sure it doesn't take root. So from this, this short little walk, the enemy's working overtime. He somehow gets in the back room, and he's talking to the preacher, and the preacher says, Ernie, it's just so excited that you, you know, have made this decision. It's the biggest and best decision you've ever made in your entire life. My, my father says, hold it right there, preacher. Why don't, you, why don't you tell me, why don't you answer a couple of questions for me? What, what about the people that didn't hear what I just heard? What about, the, what about the aborigines in other parts of the world that never heard the gospel? So he's throwing out his best question. He's saying, I'm going to stump this guy right out of the gate. And the pastor looks at me and says, Ernie, when have you ever cared about the aborigines? And my father said, touche, you got me. You know what I mean? Let's pray. Let's pray. And there's, there's a side to us that is looking for an escape. There's a side to us that uh, is, is kind of, you know, bowed up, just like, you know, just try to convince me, just try to convince me. And, and behind that is a heart issue, not just an intellectual issue. Behind that is a defiance. Behind that is a rebellion. Behind that ultimately is a rejection of God. And I want to unpack that kind of as we go forward because the reality is some of our answers or some of our resistance um, is saying something very, very uh, dramatic to the God who loves us so much. Are you tracking with me out there? So remember the first point in all this. Um, uh, God is just and God will never 
uh, render uh, or give us an unjust judgment. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following says this. Strong scripture says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God, listen, pay attention, what may be known of God is manifest in them, circle or underline those two words, in them, for God has shown it to them, circle under, underline those two, in them, to them. Very, very key. What may be known of God is manifest in and to. For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that we are all without what? Excuse. With, uh, without excuse. Since, here's, what's, here's what's going on. Here's the answer to the question. Since the beginning of time, this scripture is telling us that God has testified about of himself and about himself. Since, since time, God has testified of and about himself to every person so that no one has an excuse, no one is without excuse for the unrighteous life or about, uh, uh, that we've lived or about who God really is. He will do this inwardly, the scripture is saying, and outwardly. Inwardly and outwardly. He reveals himself to every person inwardly and outwardly. I'll unpack this, but let me say this. Man has consistently tried to um, throw out and <laughs> throw up and, and debate and dialogue about questions like this without the Bible. In other words, this is a biblical question that is attempted to be answered uh, and dissected and determined uh, without the scripture. And I would, I would exhort you and encourage you never to answer a biblical question without the use of the scriptures. That the Bible actually has the answers to these questions, and we, we uh, get ourselves in trouble because we argue and debate and try to address these types of questions with human perspectives, with opinions uh, that have been collected and Googled and, and you know, talked about uh, at, 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 at over bars, but it's all an exercise in futility. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, this is what it says. You can look it up. It's a bonus text, but it says, be careful not to base your beliefs, in essence, on the philosophies of man, the traditions of man, except on Christ. In other words, it's so important that the lens that you look at your questions and your concerns, God is not threatened by questions. You can aim your toughest questions at God. Jesus said, why, 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 God, have you forsaken me? While he was on the cross on his worst day, we call it Good Friday, he pointed his tough question at God. What can we learn from that? We can learn from that. You can aim your tough questions at God's, but don't implicate God in the process of pointing a question at him because he can handle it and you can't. That's, that's what we can learn. Questions are not the problem. It's okay to ask those questions. But when we try to answer these major questions, especially ones that pertain to eternity, not just short-term things, but to eternity, we ought to be looking through someone who has an eternal perspective, not someone who has a finite perspective. That, this is good preaching, whether you like it or not. This is good. In other words, why am I trying with a finite mind, with limitations, trying to determine what this is saying and what is right and what's wrong when God has an eternal perspective? So we want to do it from God's word. And so God has testified, Romans 1 tells us, to every person. And the word says he does it internally, he does it externally. And if you think about this, every person has a conscience. This is what I mean by the inward. We all have a conscience. You all know that. The conscience that you have came from God. 
And it is talking to you, and it is testifying to you, and it's, and it's done this since you were very young till, from, from, as people say to me when I was, you know, new in the, new in the pastorate, and, and, and they knew me when I was in, they say, from, I knew you from knee-high to a grasshopper, they used to always say, you know? And there's a whole bunch of stuff behind that, like, I don't know if I can follow you, because I knew you were a little kid, you know? Um, but, but thank God that's over, but at the same time now, <laughs> I'm a lot older now. But the point is, there was this phase in our life where at one point that conscience was very, it wasn't as seared, it wasn't as dumb and dulled and, and numbed and maybe even in denial of God. There was a time where our conscience was testifying and telling us things and trying to get our attention. And that can happen inward and outward. Outwardly, think about this. Uh, if, I, don't, I don't believe there's a person in this room that hasn't at one point in their life looked up into the heavens, looked up into the sky and not thought, there must be a God, and not thought, or inquired of God, or not thought, oh, was it not in awe of God at some point or time in their life? Is anybody willing to say that that's true of them? And I can remember just recently, just I think it was over a week ago, I was at the gym and I was biking, and I'm listening to you version in my ear, and, 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 and all of a sudden the storm breaks, and the clouds break, and a huge rainbow appears right in front of where, I, you guys probably, some of you saw this, it was all over Facebook. I go outside, it's a double rainbow! You know what I mean? It was like, whoa, I couldn't believe it. I looked up and I'm taking pictures of it and my camera was awful that day and I was so angry. But at the end of that, I thought my first response as someone with a word foundation, a relationship with God that's been cultivated over many years, I thought, you know, thank you God. My first response was thank you God for your promise. Never to destroy the earth as you said. Some people explain that away with science, but there was a day if you did explain it away with science when you didn't look at it that way and your conscience was testifying what is up with that? Or look at all the stars, or look at, look at, create, look at the ocean, look at the map, look at all these things. God was trying to get your attention through that which is external, through creation. God's creation testifies about himself. And I think we'd be lying if we didn't have that experience at one point in our time. The Bible also says that he reveals himself to every person. He can do that inwardly. How many of you ever had some sort of, I'm just going to call it an experience, you know, where uh, perhaps it was during childhood where you were where you were wondering about, or you're seeking God and questioning to know God and know about God, and somehow he revealed himself to you in some way. You knew God was there. I was doing a friend, they were in the first service, I was doing a funeral for one of my good friends whose father passed, and he was sharing with me in preparation for the funeral. He had led his father to Christ about two years ago, and his father called him up and said, Brian, I just want you to know, last night, God revealed himself to me, you know, and he was, you know, I think he was 72 or something like that. God revealed himself to me. He was, he was in my room, you know, and, and now for some of you, that may be like the weirdest thing you ever heard of, totally bizarre or whatever, but to that man, that, that's reality. And a person with an argument is at the mercy of a person with an experience. He, God revealed himself. And that can happen when you were a child. I can remember as a, as a, as a young man, 19 years old, driving in this little Subaru, uh, I'll call it the, the, the Love Shack mobile. I can't remember what it was, the, the, the gravy train mobile. There used to be this commercial with this little gravy train mobile, and this dog was chasing it. And my car looked like that little thing. And, 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 and I can remember being in this, in this car, and I was, cry, I was just sad and upset about something and started just crying out, God, why, God, why? And I felt the presence of God come in the cabin of that truck so strong that I had to pull over, just overwhelmed. Like, and he was just, not audibly, but he was speaking to me. It overwhelmed me. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And I think different people here have had 
experience with God could be mild to great, where God was testifying to you of his reality, inwardly and outwardly. How many can recall something like that? Praise the Lord. The Bible is saying this through Romans chapter 1, that no person will ever be able to stand before God and say, no one ever told me about you, God. You know, if, if that happens, I, I, this is basically what's going to happen at that day. God will say, I told you. I told you myself. I revealed myself to you. And, and yet, you, yet some, he'll say, but you chose to rebel against me. You chose to live a life far from me. Even though I was reaching out to you, and even though I was calling unto you, even though I was testifying to you, you chose to separate from me. I could do a whole series on this. Romans 1 is not the only text that talks about this. Trust me. But listen to this. This is the cool part. Every person who responds to the initiative, and trust me, God, Romans 5, 8, demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God in his initiative, God in his, in his coming towards us, uh, he, his effort in doing that is so that we will respond to him. And here's his promise. Every person who seeks God will find God. Every person who responds to those overtures will, it's a, fact, it's a promise, find God. Here's some scripture to back it up. Proverbs 8, 17 says this, look in your notes. I love those who love me. And those that seek me diligently, they will find me. I think God sometimes plays a little bit of dodge dad. That's what I used to call it when I was a, when I was a young father. I'd come home from work. I had four kids. People say, you must love kids. I say, no, I love, I, I love my wife. That's what happens. And, and the kids would come, and they'd say, hey, daddy's home, daddy's home. We had a long hallway, and they'd start running after their father. And as they're running down the hallway, I'd be like, come, go, come, give me your daddy. And I'd go, whoop, and they go, Psh, right into a door. <laughs> How bad do you want me? <laughs> No, it wasn't, it's not that graphic with God and us, but I, I do believe there's a little bit of like, if, we just, if, if, he just, if he just responded to us on that first overture, we'd leave him very quickly. And so it's those that re- those seek him and, and go after him diligently. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with what? All your heart. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open unto you for everyone, not just believers, but everyone who asks, receives. You see the effort that there's a little bit of effort. He who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you who is, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He respo- he's a, here, here's the thing. We have to have a theological understanding, a truth side of it, but we also have to have a transform heart side of it about God. There's the law of God that we need to know here. There's the nature of God that we need to know here. And if you separate those two things, you won't find God and you won't know how to respond sometimes to his overtures or initiatives. In other words, Hebrews says, you must believe that he is, that's the fact, the truth, that God is, and that he is a rewarder, that's the nature of God, of those who diligently seek him. you got to understand, but you also have to appreciate he's a rewarder. He's a good God. So one of, the, one of the reasons that we get ourselves in trouble with tough questions like this is because we're just trying to have intellectual assent about certain information, but we're not having transformational uh, information descend into our hearts so that we see him the right way. We see him through the right lens. We see him as an infinite being who has nothing that he needs, but he chose to need us and be in a relationship with us. And that's why he's doing all that he's doing. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says, and he has made from one blood every nation of man. 
In other words, we're all related. We're all related. Turn your neighbor and say, what's up, cuz? Turn to your second choice and say, what's up, cuz? All right? You're all, you're all family. We are family. And he, it says this, and has determined, this is so cool, has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so what? So that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope, I'll come back to that word, for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, in him we live and move and have our being. An old song we used to sing, in him we live and move. That's really old school. I'm going to get away from that song right away. And Everybody, three, four time. No, it was a really bad song. But here's what's going on in this particular uh, verse. God is saying, you know, this is what happened with, with my father. The, the, the trials and the, and the difficulties of the marriage, God didn't cause those, but because we were rebellious, because we were in a recalcitrant state, because we didn't respond to the initiatives and overtures of God outwardly and inwardly, we started getting ourselves in trouble, and then God uses that to bring us back to God. God's doing that personally, but he also did that providentially. You are here living in this area, in this in this relational uh, uh, environment that you're in, at this season of history, God's using all that so that perhaps you would reach out for him, though he is not far from each one of you personally. He was doing something big picture, trying to each person individually come and have their own God picture. Does that make sense? He's going out of his way. That's showing you the nature of God, not just the answers or rules about God. To grope means to make an effort despite difficulties. He wants, you to, he wants you to pursue him through those difficulties. He's using those things, those circumstances, and leveraging those to bring you to himself. So the first point basically is saying no person will ever receive an unjust judgment from God. The next point is this, and this is big, it's a follow-up to this dis- distinction I was just making, is that God is a loving God. Everybody say God is loving. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. So the question, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? If, he's, if God is a loving God, in order to answer this question, we have to first do it from a biblical perspective and more importantly, from a God perspective. So in other words, I want you to see what the Bible has to say, but again, I want you to see, what, uh, I want you to see it through God's eyes. I want, you to, I want you to realize that God is a person. He, he, he's just not... You know, it's, it's, it's not like the Wizard of Oz where he's just sitting on this throne and, who, you know, who approaches me? You know, he's a person. And this is essential in order for this to have, in order for you to have revelation knowledge, which changes a person. That's where change comes. Otherwise, this is self-help. This is just, this is just like uh, a class. This is not about that to God. It's much bigger than that. And I believe, I believe what I'm going to share with you, most people have not thought about what I'm going to tell you from God's position, from God's posture, from his perspective. And and here's the truth. The truth is God didn't create hell. God created hell, but he didn't create it for people. God created hell, but he didn't create it for people. In fact, he sent his son into the world so that no one would have to go there ever whether people knew about Jesus before he came or after he came. His goal, Jesus came to pay the price so that no one would ever have to go to hell, so that if a person would seek and find forgiveness from their sins, how? Through the blood atonement of Jesus Christ, which just basically means his sacrifice pays for our sins because he was a perfect sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world as John the Baptist spoke. Uh, You can be saved, all right? 
But he went out of his way to make sure, his heart is to make sure no one has to go there. 2 Peter 3.9, look in your notes, it says, The Lord is not slacking or slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, or in your translation, your Bible may say slowness. But in long-suffering towards us, he is patient. Uh, Jesus is waiting to come back, I think, at any moment. He's like, God, can I go now? Can I go now? And God said, okay, yeah, you know, get on your horse. You know, wait a second, wait a second. I, w- I want to hang on a little bit longer. There's a few more people that I want to reach. That's his heart. He's being patient. It says he's not willing that any should perish, ultimately be separated from him, but that all should come to repentance, a life change, a heart change where they choose him. And so to answer this question well, I want to give you some biblical examples or stories so you can see it through God's eyes. I hope you can see through God's eyes how he feels and what's happened over history. I want you to see from God's perspective, because if he is just and and he's loving, and he is just and loving, then this is how he sees it. He sees some things that man does that in an ultimate sense are inexcusable, in an ultimate sense are rebellious, in an ultimate sense are rejecting of him. And, and, And again, four stories about that. Let me give you those fast. Four stories about inexcusable, rebellious rejection of a loving God. The first story that many of you know and have heard, maybe don't know where it is or haven't heard in a while, is Satan and the angels reject God in Isaiah chapter 14. You can look up on your own, Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 15, and Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. Here's what happened. Lucifer rebels against God and deceives one-third of all the angels in heaven. Do you believe that, Pastor? Yes, I do. And they're ultimately cast down out of heaven. Lucifer was formerly known as the, the, the worship leader in heaven, a very prestigious position or role. He was so beautiful, so persuasive, so influential that he convinced a third of the angels to follow him. And listen to this. You may not think about this, but this is a perspective that I want you to have. That's the fact, but here's, that's the law, that's the truth about it, but here's the nature of it. Here's the context of it. These angels weren't born in a ghetto. They didn't have a bad father. They were never mistreated. They weren't attempted like we are today. And God never did anything to warrant their rebellion or their rejection, but they did. And this was before we were ever created. Satan was hurled down, the scripture says, like lightning. I personally believe, my personal belief, that's when hell was created. And by the way, if you think someone you know on this earth has a fastball that will beat anybody's fastball, you should see God's fastball. He threw Satan from hell like that. There's no contest between God and the enemy. And this, this all happened in a flash. And, I, and again, I believe he was thrown into the center of the earth. Many theologians believe that. And hell was created for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41 tells us that. But more importantly than the fact of the matter and the context of it, think about this. Have you ever been personally rejected by someone? Raise your hand if you've ever been rejected. Is there anything that hurts more than rejection? Scientifically, relationally, emotionally. No, there isn't. Rejection is the worst kind of hurt. It's actually the greatest hurt you can experience. And we think sometimes of our pain and our rejection, and we can identify with it. But what, what if we tried to identify with God's rejection? I think we sometimes think God is this clinical, uh, emotionless, sterile being that is up there. And yet, the truth is, we were created in his image. The truth is, 
We get our emotions, the love, the joy, the peace, the indignation, the anger, the hurt, the fact that we can be grieved by someone. God can be grieved. God can be hurt. God can be rejected. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. We can anger God, the Scripture clearly tells us. We can make God cry. And so God was rejected. And in an ultimate sense, it was inexcusable because he was a good God and a loving God. So God does that. And then God creates man and he does it in his image and he gives him emotions and and will and feelings. And Adam and Eve come along and they reject God. Genesis 3, the whole chapter. And we're not talking about, in their case, we're not talking about a God they didn't know. The Bible says that they walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. They had intimate knowledge and relationship of who he was, and this wasn't in a sin-filled world that we're living in today. This was a perfect environment, and they had a perfect marriage, and they had perfect bodies, and they had perfect conversation, and they had a perfect climate and circumstances, yet, and they had one boundary, one. That's it. And you say, well, you know, well, they're, they're, you know, why did he do that? Why did he make it all perfect? Because you can't appreciate that which is good unless you understand, you, it's, unless there's a contrast. You can't experience joy and pleasure unless you understand the pain. There has, to be, there has to be freedom with boundaries for there to be appreciated freedom. And so they rejected a loving God. It was inexcusable. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus was ultimately given to the earth and he was rejected. And I'll come back to this, but he made a way for us and and yet we rejected him. And then this comes later, this is prophecy, but after Jesus uh, um, comes and and, and, uh, through the eastern sky and calls for us and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then those later will join him, he takes us back and then some come back to the earth to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years under Jesus here on this present earth. It's called the millennial reign. I'll get to this. I know this is a little confusing. I'll unpack this later. But Jesus, after his return, he comes here, he rules. The enemy, the devil, is thrown into a bottomless pit for a thousand years during that time. And because of his rebellion, and this is kind of crazy, but at the end of the thousand years, the enemy is released, and people will still, after Jesus has ruled and reigned for a thousand years, some people will still rebel and follow the enemy again. And the truth is, all God wants and all God gets after all this is done is a family. He doesn't need us. He chose to need us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And if you, when you read the Bible, whether you read major prophets, minor prophets, uh, uh, it, it's really, these men are, they're, they're, they're the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, they're all crying out, trying to say, please come back to God. Please don't reject God. Please turn your heart to God. Please take me seriously. That's what they're all doing. And when you read that, I hope you see it that way, because at the end of it all, this earth as we know it is at some point, destroyed, but later the earth is recreated. Later there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and we'll talk about that more, but the only thing that lasts through all of this, the most important thing, is family. If you want family, you're going to have to choose to be in the family. And so God created you with the free will. He gave you free will agency. He gave you the ability of your own volition to reject or accept God. And you can write this in your notes, but the greatest gift God ever gave outside of Christ to the earth, the the greatest gift that God gave mankind in creation was free will. It's your greatest gift is free will, the ability to choose him. It's your most powerful muscle that you have. It has, because it's the most powerful because because the decisions of your free will hold the most weight That's why it's the strongest muscle you have. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you stand in front of your dishwasher at home, you don't celebrate and do a party when it's doing the dishes. 
the dish thing's going, you know, like, whoa, good job, Mr. Dishwasher. Good job. Way to go. Do a toe touch for that. No, it's a machine. You're just thinking, it's just doing what it's supposed to. You wouldn't celebrate that. The only time you'd celebrate if it was broken and got fixed. But, ladies, if your husband is doing the dishes in the sink and he's putting them away, you're, it's a party. You're celebrating, right? You're celebrating. If your kids take out the trash and you didn't ask them, it's, it's a party for a week. If your daughter washes the dog and bathes the dog and you didn't ask her, it's a big deal, right? It's a big difference. And so when someone who doesn't have to love you loves you, it's meaningful. But when someone who has to love you loves you, it's meaningless, Free will is so central to this point. God could have created you where you had to. He didn't. You have to choose him. And we've talked about this before, but did you know that what God, you know why it makes God happy when you worship him like you did just a few minutes ago? Because you chose to do it. That's why he's smiling. That's why the Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people is because you chose to worship him of your own free will and volition. And as a result, he's happy about that. You have to choose to love God. You have to choose to serve God. You have to choose to give to God. And let me say it another way. Would God send someone to hell? No. But people can send themselves there. Hell was never created for you and me. Hell is just a place where we can go if we choose to pay for our sins ourselves and reject a God who so badly wants to be in relationship with us. You need to understand that your eternal destination is not determined by God, it's determined by you and me. Here's what really happened. Here's what's happened in our culture today, and I hope this can just like, I wish there was a way to like inflate the font on this, but human error given to us by the enemy of our souls, is there to turn our hearts away from God. God wants us to get all wrapped up in our head about it instead of really seeing him the right way. It, it's, it's, like, it's like a man who's chained to a chair, you know, and, and you say, you know, hey, man, I really appreciate you being here spending all this time with me. And the guy's over here, and he's chained to the chair, and he's got a chain and ankle. And he's like, man, I'm here for you all day. Whatever you need, man, I'm here for you. You know what I mean? That's That's crazy. You need anything, man? I'm here. Just whatever you need, man. You guys chained to the chair. You guys are not chained to the chair. None of you are chained to the chair. Nobody forced you to come to church today. Nobody forced you to come to God either or ever will. No one will force you to read your Bible, pray, give, serve, do anything for someone else. The only reason you'll do that is because you voluntarily chose to. The only reason you'll come to God is because you voluntarily chose to love God and surrender your life to God. It's completely up to you. And it's true that God chose us before we chose him. Some of you are going to go to the theology of election with me. Let me explain this to you. God chose everyone in the world. The Bible says, for God so loved the world, that's everyone, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says he, didn't wish, he just doesn't want anybody to be condemned, but he wants everybody to be saved. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, you know, that God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself. God, yes, he chose you. Yes, that's true. But we sometimes misunderstand election. But the only people in heaven are those who chose him. In other words, in an ultimate sense, 
in, in, in our operative word ultimate, it's, it's wrong. The, the biggest sin is to reject God. The biggest sin ultimately, the unforgivable sin is to reject God. I had some boys over my house recently. My son came upstairs. It was like 11 o'clock at night. Hey, Dad, some guys downstairs, you think you can come downstairs and answer a few questions? They have a few questions. That's another way of saying, let's play the game, stump the pastor. Okay? You never know what's going to come out of their mouth, and it's always going to be something heavy and pithy. So get downstairs hour later. You know, we're, we're kind of going through this different stuff. And basically, one of the things that came out was this whole discussion about unforgivable sin. Is there an unforgivable sin? Well, Mark chapter 3, verse 29 tells us that whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Anybody ever heard that scripture before? It's pretty strong. Then it says, you have to have things in context, they are guilty of eternal sin. And so there's a connection between blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and eternity. So you cannot just take the first half of the verse, dissect that, try to interpret that. That's called eisegesis. You have to properly exegete the scripture, take the whole verse, put it in context, and then interpret it. Does that make sense? You're like, no, but okay. We're going with it, Pastor. We're going with it, okay? So here's, here's, why, here's why I'm saying what I'm saying, all right? The, 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 the sin that ultimately can separate us, that's unforgivable, is to not, is to ultimately reject God. So you have this life to decide. We don't know how long it is. We don't know when it ends. We can hope for three score and 10 years, like, the, you know, 70 plus, hopefully. We don't know that for certain. But you have this life, this 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 temporary assignment to decide to accept or reject him. If you ultimately reject him, that is unforgivable. It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who initiates who the catalyst for salvation. We're tripart being, spirit, mind, and body. Our mind and our body are alive. Our spirit has to be quickened by the Holy Spirit. This is called the doctrine of regeneration. How do we get saved? We invite Jesus Christ into our heart, into our life. That is a choice we make of our own free will. When we do, the Holy Spirit ignites our spirit and unites us with God. And then we become a new creation, a new person. That was a lot in a really short amount of time. That's what happens. So when you basically, in an ultimate sense, say, no, I'm going to save myself. I'm not going to accept what he did for me. We are blaspheming what God did for us. We are rejecting him. In an ultimate sense, it's inexcusable, it's rebellious, and it's rejection. So that's what I think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, and many believe that the same as me. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5 as I'm way over. And I want to show you something as I kind of wrap this thing up. Isaiah chapter 5, another major prophet telling us of things to come. And then I'm going to pull it into another scripture from the book of Matthew. Are you still tracking with me, everybody? Okay. Listen, again, Isaiah chapter 5. Listen, just all in the context that hell wasn't created for us, but God went out of his way to connect with us. Isaiah 5 says, now let me sing to my well-beloved, verse 1, a song of my beloved. Let me interpret this for you. My beloved is Jesus, or God, regarding his vineyard. The vineyard is the people. So Jesus, regarding his people. My well-beloved, Jesus, has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it. Look what, he's, look what he does for his people, his church. And planted it with the choicest vine. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He built a tower. A tower is the church, as referenced in Micah 4 and Matthew 5. This is a lot of prophecy stuff going on right here. Some of you guys will love this stuff. He built a tower, that's the church, or the pulpit, you could say, in the midst. And it was also made 
a wine, he also made a wine press in it. The wine press is referred to as the Holy Spirit. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. He had an expectation because of what I did for the church that it would bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. Bless you. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. Then God says, look at his heart here. Look at, his, look at what he's thinking. What more could have been done to my vineyard? What else could I have done for my people that I have not done for them. Why then, when I expect it to bring forth good grapes, does it bring forth wild grapes? Look at verse 11. Stay with me. It's like poetry class for some of you having things interpreted. Woe to those, verse 11, who rise early in the morning, that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till the wine inflames them, the harp and the, and the strings, the tambourine and the flute and the wine are in their feast, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting God. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they've rejected God. They're now bound. They're not free. They're in bondage because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with their thirst. This is a big verse, verse 14. This is a major change. Verse 14, therefore, Sheol, everybody say Sheol, that means hell. It's the Hebrew word for hell. So let's, let's, let's put the word in there. Therefore, hell has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. Their foolishness and their folly, now they're falling into it. Verse 15, this is totally new. Before this, it didn't happen, now it does. People shall be brought down. People go there now. Each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. Here's what's going on, guys. I don't know if you can get all of this uh, in a few minutes, but listen to me. God is saying, I planted a vineyard and I gave it every opportunity to flourish and be successful, but men chose sin instead of me. And because of that, because of that now, Hell has been enlarged. Sheol, hell. In the Greek, it's Hades. Some people say, well, that's not what it means. Hell means the place of waiting. That's a, that's a commentary that you read to get that. It's some man's comment, but the actual translation, if you understand Hebrew and Greek, is, it means hell, period. Trust me on that one. Did you know that Jesus talked about hell more than any other subject in the Bible? See, the church doesn't want to talk about hell anymore. Commentaries want to change the word so it doesn't even come up in commentaries anymore. The enemy is trying to make sure that the subject is never talked about again, yet Jesus talked about it a lot, not because he's angry, because he is in love with his people, and he wants to do everything that he possibly can to convince and to convey to them that this is about eternity. I want to be together as a family. I want you to choose. I want you to see, and I'm sending people after people, and now I'm here myself trying to get your attention. Hell was not created for us, but because people rebelled and resisted him, hell had to be enlarged. Hell was enlarged by necessity, not by design. It was enlarged by an inexcusable, rebellious rejection of God from people. And as we read this next chapter, Matthew chapter 21, verse 33 through 39, remember these words that I showed you earlier, the vineyard, the people, the winepress, the Holy Spirit, and the tower, the church. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, showing you kind of uh, the prophecy kind of unpacked. Jesus says, here's another parable. There was a certain landowner, verse 33, who planted a vineyard and set a, hod, a, a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servant, beat one, killed one, and stoned the other. Let me just tell you what that is. It's the prophets. 
The prophets came and they spoke and they, hey, hey, pay attention. And they're crying out and they're saying, come back to God, come back to God. They beat him, they stoned him, and they killed him. And then again, it says they sent other servants more than the first and they did likewise to them. It's talking about all the prophets. Verse 37, then the last of all he sent, his son. You all know who that is. They sent his son to them saying, they will, they will respect my son. So God's up there and he's saying, send people, tell them, tell them, tell them. It, it, tell them, what's all, I'm just, I love them, but they have to choose me. They have to choose me. And they killed them. They stoned them. They, 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 they beat them, and they killed them. They sent another pack. No. And so then the father says, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect him. They'll respond to him. Look what happens. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. The third story that I referenced earlier is the ultimate rejection of Jesus. And I named this message as I wrap this up and try to put it all in a, well, not a ribbon, but with clarity. I named this message a tough question. But the tough question when you understand theology and the tough question when you understand doctrine, the tough question when you understand the nature and the character of God, it's totally different than that question. The toughest question is, how can anybody how could anybody reject a loving God? And I can't answer that for you. Nobody can but you. Would you stand on your feet and let me pray for you? I think that what I do, if you just look me in the eye, is about eternity more than it's about this life. And I just think this is so important, what I'm talking to you about. And I just pray that in your mind and in your heart, your arms aren't crossed, but your arms are open and surrendered. And if you're there, as you close your eyes, everybody, if you could just close your eyes with your... If you're there and your heart's open, we just maybe just put to your right or your left, you just put your hands to your right, just show you you're, you're open to God. Maybe put your hand on your heart and you just say you're open to God. You're listening to what he's saying. You're receptive. You get it. A malleable, unteachable God. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, with being still before God, I guess what I hear the Holy Spirit saying is, are you going to choose me now? Are you going to choose to love me now? Are you going to choose to serve me now? Are you going to choose to walk with me now? Will you decide to raise your family and your loved ones, the next generation, now? It's not just about you, it's about them too. Will you, will, you, will you come to me or will you continue to run from me? Will you continue to make excuses, rebel against me and reject me? I'm crying over you. I cried through my prophets. I cried through my son. And I just want to be with you. Will you choose me? say, I don't know how to do that. Well, that's actually easy. You can just invite him in your heart. And a simple prayer will begin that journey. Your heart can change in a moment, but your life has changed over time and you need to connect to God, godly people in a godly place to have your life changed, but to have your heart changed and to have assurance that you're in the family. You just need to invite Jesus Christ into your life right now. And if that's you and you know he is knocking on your heart and you're not want to play games anymore, would you, between me and God, boldly raise your hand 
and just say, that's me. I need to choose God right now. I'm not leaving without choosing him. God bless you. Is there anybody else? Don't miss it. You have no promise of tomorrow. You have no idea. It's the best decision you can make. And be bold about it. Thank you, God. Church, would you just pray this with me? God bless you. Church, just pray this with me. And those of you who have already made this decision, ask God to freshen your walk up with him. Where you see this right so that you give it away. You not be intimidated by what the enemy convinces us through human error and through the lens of man. But see it through God's eyes. This is something we need to talk about with people. This is something we need to give away. People are eternally separated from him because of the lies of the enemy and the error of humanity. We need to see God as he is, that he's a loving God and that he's a just God. Just say this. Say, Jesus, come into my life afresh, anew today. I surrender to you. I believe that you are just and that you are loving. And whatever happens, we deserve it. But because I accept you and what you did for me by grace, all justice has been fulfilled through Jesus. I am justified just as if I never sinned because Jesus put it on himself and not on me. And for that, I love you. And for that, I'll follow you and surrender my life to you all the days of my life. Now, Father, I pray in Jesus' name for every person that's here that they give away that wonderful truth. That Christianity is like breathing. You don't just take it in and keep it to yourself. You get weird and wacky. They take it in and you exhale it and you give it away. I pray that you encourage people, that you make them bold and courageous evangelists for the kingdom of God. I bestow upon everybody the office of an evangelist, that people in this room, be ambassadors, Jesus Christ. You've given each one of us the ministry of reconciliation. Help us, God, not to judge people, but to connect them to you, God. May no lie or deception get in the way and keep us, keep us from you, God. Give us a breakthrough, Lord. We see you as you are, that you are loving and you're just, and your nature is so, so merciful, God. May we never reject you or rebel against you again. It's inexcusable, Lord. And thank you for this life to choose you. Thank you for the days that we've had thus far to accept who you are. Thank you so much, God. Thank you so much. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen.